Now, before I invite our speaker, uh, Chris, up, uh, we'll now have a time of Bible reading. Uh, so we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, uh, all the way to the end of chapter 3 today. So I'll give us a moment to take our Bibles out. Uh, so we don't, have the, the, we don't have the scripture on screen today. So please follow along uh, with, your own, uh, with your own Bibles or e-Bibles as well on your devices. So reading from Genesis chapter 2, uh, the ESV. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Fishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis chapter 3. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves long cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I shall surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his first wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of our Lord. Now, just as Chris comes up, I also need to invite the children uh, to quickly move uh, to the children's program as well. So thank you, uh, children and children's helpers. And uh, thank you, Chris. While we uh, wait for the children to uh, leave, why don't you turn to your neighbor and uh, discuss with them on a scale of 1 to 10,
How rested are you feeling right now and why? One is not at all rested. Ten is maximally rested. Let me tell you a bit about uh, my sort of last uh, year or so, give you an impression of where I am on the scale of one to ten. So we actually had a sabbatical in the middle of this year, three months of not having to work. We had a lovely time in a house in England, just a big garden, lots of sunshine, barbecues. So three months, just no work at all. But we also have had a new baby uh, this year. Uh, she's eight months old now. And I'm pretty confident I haven't had a good night's sleep in, uh, in the entirety of that eight months. I've seen 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. far more often than I would uh, like to. And actually, this last 10 days, uh, our whole family's been unwell. I uh, haven't, haven't been doing very well, all sorts of horrible symptoms. So I don't know, something in the sort of the three, maybe four end of the spectrum for me. I don't know, anyone here a 10? No 10s, anyone a one? That's good. I assume we're all somewhere in that uh, middle. But now that you feel a little bit sorry for me, and now that you know that I'm uh, feeling weak in myself, let's pray for God's help uh, to think about his word together. Our Father, we thank you that you are the mighty and living and speaking God, and we thank you that we have an opportunity to come together as your people over these next few days to listen to you speak to us. And because we know that you are speaking, and we pray that we would be given ears to hear, and by your spirit hearts that want to receive uh, what you have to feed us with from your word in these coming days. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the next few days, we will be hearing a story that is familiar uh, to many of us. We're going to hear the story of the whole uh, Bible. I remember the very first time that I read a book called God's Big Picture uh, by Vaughan Roberts. Maybe you've read it. I remember being blown away that the Bible wasn't a random collection of stories, but one coherent story that begins with creation and ends uh, with a new creation. And since reading God's Big Picture, I've read several other books which have told the same story in greater detail or from a different uh, perspective. And I know that uh, many of you will have read similar books, and you will know the story of the Bible well. But I hope that this weekend will allow us to see a familiar story from a fresh perspective. A familiar story from a fresh perspective. We're going to be tracing the theme of rest uh, through the Bible. It's one of those surprising themes that when you start looking for it, uh, you see it everywhere in the Old Testament and in the New. And I hope that this fresh perspective on a familiar story, it won't just be an intellectual exercise for us. I hope that it will encourage us and transform us in many ways. You see, tracing the theme of rest through the Bible, it will give us a fresh perspective on God's character, fresh perspectives on what it means to be a human, fresh perspectives on why Jesus had to die on the cross, fresh perspectives on what it means to live for him. So that's what we're hoping for in the course of these next few days as we trace this theme of rest together. And we're going to jump in right at the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1 uh, to 3. So Genesis 1, you should be familiar, teaches us that God is the majestic creator. And everything that exists is part of his good creation. And the peak 
of God's creative activity is day six. So day six, it starts like all the other days, but then things start to get unusual in chapter one, verse 26, when God makes human beings. God doesn't say, let there be. He says, let us make. And humans are different from other creatures because we're made in the image and likeness of God. That means that we share God's capacity for relationship and we are given responsibility uh, to rule creation under God. So day six, it is the peak, the mountaintop of God's creative activity. And that's why God declares that it is not just good, like all the other days, but very good in verse 31. But even though day six is the high point of creation, the top of the mountain, it's not the goal or the purpose of creation. In other words, creation doesn't conclude with day six. To understand the goal of creation, the purpose, we need to look at day seven. So look with me again at Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So day six, it stands out from days one to five, but day seven is completely different. It's unique. I wonder if you ever heard of synesthesia. You're a sort of pop psychologist. You ever heard of synesthesia? You might even have synesthesia. Don't worry, it's not a terrible disease. Uh, synesthesia means that people who associate sequences with colors. So some people associate the different months of the year uh, with specific colors. Uh, for me, it's uh, certain days of the week. So for as long as I can remember, uh, Monday has been blue, Tuesday has been yellow, Wednesday has been orange, Thursday has been green, Friday has been red, Saturday is black, and Sunday is a sort of silvery white. That's just how I've always associated the days of the week. But if my uh, sequence was more biblically informed, well, then days one to six, they should all just be one color, maybe just different shades, maybe different shades of blue. But then day seven, a completely different color, bright, bright red, completely different from all the other days. At least three ways that it's completely different. First of all, God doesn't create anything new on day seven. Instead, he rests. We're told that twice in verse two and verse three. Second difference, the day, seventh day is specifically set apart as holy, verse 3. Everything belongs to God, but when he designates something holy, uh, that means that it belongs to him in a special way. It's sacred. And then final difference, the seventh day never ends. I wonder if you noticed that. Every other day in Genesis 1, it concludes with the words, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day, second day, so on. 
But this special seventh day on which God rests has no evening and no morning. It never comes to an end. And so that begs the question, what exactly does it mean that God rests? Whatever it is, God intends to do it indefinitely. So what is rest? Well, there are surprisingly few clues in verses 1 to 3. Now, we can say that rest uh, is not inactivity. It's not that God puts his feet up and switches on Netflix on the seventh day. But look closely at verse 2. It says he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. There's not total rest. It's just rest from the work he's been doing so far, the work of the previous six days. So there's nothing new that he creates on the seventh day, but that's not the same as saying that God does nothing. So rest is not inactivity. But is that all we can say? Does the author of Genesis leave us guessing about what rest actually is? Well, no. In fact, understanding rest is so important that he, un- he, he starts a whole new section of the book to show us what rest is. So come with me to Eden, a picture of rest. We're at the next point on the handout. Eden, a picture of rest. Now, how do we know, first of all, that this is a new section of Genesis? Very often people think that Genesis 1 and 2 are sort of grouped together. But actually, I want to suggest that Genesis 2 is a new section of Genesis. uh, And that it's connected to the seventh-day rest. How do we know that? Well, look at Genesis 2, verse 4. Starts with that very important phrase. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. If you've read Genesis, you'll know that that phrase, these are the generations, it appears 10 times in the book of Genesis. And it marks out the major sections of the book. So most sections in Genesis, they end by briefly introducing a character or a concept. And then the following section will tell you about that character in more detail. And the words, these are the generations, they're sort of used as an introduction. You could paraphrase it, here's what happened next. So flick over just very quickly to Genesis 6 verse 7. Genesis 6 verse 7, I will see the pattern very clearly. So you look at verse 7 and 8, and Noah and the flood, they get a brief introduction in verses 7 and 8. But then the story of Noah and the flood, it really gets started in verse 9, and it begins with the words, these are the generations of Noah. Here's what happened next with Noah. So flick back to Genesis 2. It's the same pattern. The seventh day, we get a brief introduction to it in verses 1 to 3. But then 2 verse 4 tells us more about God's rest. Here's what happened next with the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in a nutshell, rest means that God enters into relationship with creation. Rest means that God enters into relationship with creation. That's the central theme 
of Genesis chapter 2, relationship. When we say that God rests, it means that he's entering into a joyful, fruitful relationship with everything that he has made. And in particular, God enters into a joyful, fruitful relationship with human beings, starting with Adam and Eve. Now, we're not going to look at every verse in Genesis 2. Let me highlight just two details I would show us that rest is about at God entering a relationship with his creation. Two details are the name and the place. So first of all, did you notice that God's name changes from Genesis 1 into Genesis chapter 2? So God's name changes from 2 verse 4 onwards. So throughout Genesis 1, he's simply referred to as God. And that translates the Hebrew word Elohim. And that's very appropriate because it's referring to him as the majestic creator who transcends creation. But then from Genesis 2, verse 4, all the way to 3, verse 24, he is called the Lord God. And you probably know whenever the word Lord is written in capital letters in your Bible, it's translating God's special name. What is it? Yahweh, great. So that's the name that God revealed to the Israelites in the time of Moses and the Exodus. And knowing God by his special name, Yahweh, that was a sign that the Israelites were in a covenant relationship with God. If you were to meet the prime minister, how would you refer to him? Probably PM Lee or Mr. Prime Minister. But imagine you are his wife. Well, she will call him Sien Long or something equally intimate. It's a sign that she's in a relationship with him that other people aren't. And this name Yahweh, it was so special to them, so important to them, that an Israelite reader would have spotted it immediately in Genesis 2, verse 4. It's so special they weren't even allowed to write it down. They just left a gap there. So God's name is the first major clue that Adam and Eve were in this sort of special relationship with God. And then the second clue is the place. The Garden of Eden is a place designed for a joyful, fruitful relationship between human beings and God. We're all familiar with purpose-built buildings. So this building is designed to accommodate lots of guests and make sure they are comfortable and enjoying themselves. Changi Prison also accommodates lots of guests, but with very different comfort levels and for a very different purpose. Well, Eden is a purpose-built garden. Purpose-built for humans to enjoy a relationship with God. What are the clues in the passage that help us see that? It's clearly an incredible garden planted by God himself, verse 8, filled with beautiful trees, fruit trees, verse 9. And then there are two notable trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They help us understand that this isn't a normal garden. It isn't the ancient equivalent of the botanic gardens, as beautiful as they are. Eden was a place where Adam and Eve could enjoy everlasting life. 
where they could live under God's rule and command. The picture of abundance continues in verses 10 to 14. Four massive rivers flowed out of the garden. And nearby, gold and precious stones can be found. So abundant. And then finally, if we glance ahead at chapter 3, verse 8, we see that God himself walked in the garden. Eden was a place where God was especially present so that Adam and Eve could have an intimate, never-ending relationship with him. Now, many people have tried to pinpoint Eden geographically. If you Google, where is Eden today? You'll find all sorts of places trying to sort of pin a map on the Middle East, uh, somewhere near the Euphrates River, which is still around. But the original readers, the first Israelites in the time of Moses, if you'd ask them, where is Eden? Well, they might have laughed at the idea. The Israelites knew exactly where Eden was. More precisely, they knew what Eden had become. You see, the Garden of Eden would have reminded them immediately of their tabernacle. Uh, their tabernacle was where God dwelt in their midst so that they could enjoy a relationship with him. Uh, they would have made the connection between the tabernacle and Eden. Just like uh, their tabernacle, Eden was the place where God was especially present with them so that they could enjoy a relationship with him. Now, that might seem like a slightly strange connection to make, but we need to try and read Genesis 2 through the eyes of the original Israelite readers. For them, the tabernacle was literally at the center of their life, right in the middle of their camp. They had spent so much of, of their time with Moses, building it, hearing about it, hearing how it was designed. So much of their relationship with God was connected to it. It would have been immediately obvious to them that the tabernacle was Eden rebooted. Now, I put some uh, verses in the handout uh, to help us see why. Um, because it's the first night and everyone's probably a little bit sleepy, I know you're going to have great sleep tonight and be very refreshed tomorrow. But you want to do a little bit of homework now just to reactivate the brain cells and try and see what connections you can spot between Eden, the tabernacle, and the seventh day scanning through some of those verses in Exodus. Don't worry if this is a little much, but have a go, see what you can spot. We'll do five minutes on this. Okay, let's uh, come together again. If that's been very head-scratching and confusing, don't worry, come and ask me afterwards. Uh, maybe we spotted some things that amazed us a little bit. So maybe we spotted that the tabernacle has all sorts of uh, garden theme, Eden themed uh, decorations. Uh, lots of uh, plants and tree, uh, the lamp shaped like a tree in the middle. A door that faces east. Uh, the cherubim uh, engraved on the curtain that guards the door. Uh, what's even more interesting is that the Exodus connects the tabernacle with the seventh day. So maybe you spotted that in Exodus 24. Moses waits six days on the mountain, before on the seventh day, he's called into God's presence to receive the design of the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 33, we read those words, and Moses finished the work. It's Genesis 2, verse 2, almost word for word, and God finished 
the work, uh, his his work rather. So there's other things. Maybe maybe you saw some other ones, but I think it's the original readers. They would have connected the dots between Eden, uh, the tabernacle, uh, the seventh day, and later on their uh, their temples under Solomon and the temple at Ezekiel uh, prophesied and so on. They would have understood that life in Eden is a picture of rest, a joyful, fruitful relationship with God. Now, when I say that Adam and Eve enjoyed a relationship with God, I don't mean that they sort of spent all day staring into one another's eyes. No, God's plan was to sustain his creation in an intimate partnership with human beings. So that's why Adam is given a job in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Rest didn't mean inactivity for God, and it didn't mean inactivity uh, for Adam and Eve either. It meant working together in a fruitful partnership to care for and sustain creation. So pulling it all together, hopefully we can see why it's so amazing to read that God rested on the seventh day, that this is what he wanted to do indefinitely. It was a sign that with creation completed, he was ready to enjoy a relationship with his creation. It was a sign that he was ready to dwell with human beings. It was an invitation to join him in his ongoing work of caring for creation. That is why rest is the goal of creation. And that's what makes the seventh day so special. Just take a, a step back and think about this uh, for a moment. I wouldn't it have been a wonderful to have been part of this. To live in a world where there is no disconnect between work and rest. So often we worry about work-life balance because our work, our jobs are not restful. But in Eden, there was no disconnect. Work and rest were one and the same activity. Because work was always fruitful and meaningful. And it was always done under the blessing and direction of God. Or maybe it's not work, our jobs, that we find hiring and stressful. Maybe it's church. Maybe your name is on three different rosters. And you help teach at Sunday school. And somehow you're leading a small group as well. And frankly speaking, it's very tiring. You know in your heart of hearts that you're doing it to serve God, but it's draining. And sometimes you want to take a break. Well, again, in Eden, there was no disconnect between serving God and resting. They were one and the same activity. Because serving him was always joyful and fruitful. And he was always right there with you, laboring alongside you as you took care of creation. This picture in Genesis 2, it's written, I think, to stir our hearts, to make us long for what might have been. Wouldn't it be wonderful? to be part of this, 
But sadly, as we know, the perfect rest of Genesis 2, it doesn't last forever. In Genesis 3, it's as if the seventh day is brought to an abrupt end. Because of what happens in Genesis 3, humanity is restless. Again, we won't look at the verses in detail, but the story will be familiar to many of us. Starts with Eve being tempted by the serpent. I said earlier that that uh, God is re- consistently referred to as uh, what's His name in Genesis two and three, the Lord God Yahweh. That's true, except when the serpent speaks. The serpent just calls him God, cuts out personal name Yahweh. Look at verse one. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" He's trying to make Eve forget the wonderful relationship that she enjoys with Yahweh. And sadly, he succeeds. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and that ruins everything. Their rest became restlessness. They threw their relationship with God out the window. We see that unfold slowly and tragically in Genesis 3. First sign their relationship with God is broken is that they hide from him, verse 8. And Adam tries to blame God for giving him the woman, verse 12. Their relationship is unraveling fast. And because God is holy, he won't just sweep things under the carpet. In terrible words of judgment, he condemns them to restlessness. So I read verses 16 to 19 again. Just notice how every aspect of their formerly good and fruitful relationship with God is taken away from them, piece by piece. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband, contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Such a far far cry from working and serving in the garden. There is now a massive disconnect between work and rest. Work will no longer be satisfying, done in partnership with God. Instead, it will be hard, painful, backbreaking, and soul-destroying. From now on, Adam would go to bed each night bruised and aching to get a few hours sleep before waking up to start his wearisome toil all over again. Same with Eve in her role of bearing children. And worse still, the final death will be the final nail in the coffin of their relationship with God. The grave is the final destination for restless people. And God's words here, they aren't just empty threats. 
the act of banishing from them from the garden, it confirms everything God has just said. Outside Eden, outside the place designed for an intimate relationship with God, well, they are doomed to restlessness, to alienation from God, fruitless labor, and ultimately death. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said to them, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, if reading Genesis 2 is meant to stir our hearts, make us dream about what could have been, what might have been, well, Genesis 3 is written to sadden us greatly. Just look at what we lost. Just look at what we lost. And Genesis 3 should also humble us. Because there is nothing we can do about it. One man, Adam, he ruined it for everyone. One of my more uh, traumatic memories at primary school uh, it happened after a swimming lesson. I was about nine years old, I think. And uh, we just finished the swim. And instead of getting changed, uh, some of us managed to sneak into the sauna. Now, at nine years old, we all thought this was the best thing in the world. How cool were we sitting in the sauna? And I was enjoying it so much that I decided I would go out and get some more water so I could pour it on the rocks and make the sauna even hotter. But on my way back, I was caught by a member of staff, and he came and he kicked all of us, all me and my friends, out of the sauna. And one of my friends turned to me, and I still remember what he said to me nearly 30 years later. He said, you cow, you cow. And it's just so rude. Obviously, it doesn't take much to traumatize a nine-year-old, but that has stuck with me for 30 years. It feels very, very rubbish be responsible for getting everyone else kicked out of the sauna. Well, that was Adam and Eve, only a billion times more serious. Their disobedience cost humanity our rest, the chance to enjoy God's presence and blessing forever. Because of Adam and Eve, and we are born outside the garden, cut off from the place of rest. And even if we had the chance to try and succeed where they failed, well, we couldn't. We've inherited their rebellious nature as well. Every day we do things that condemn us to restlessness, to alienation from God, fruitless labor, and ultimately death. Genesis 3 should sadden us. It should humble us. But it also helps us to understand the world we live in. Why is it that we experience such a disconnect between work and rest? Why is it that we lurch from one extreme to another? Sometimes we overwork like crazy. Sometimes we just bum around and do nothing with our lives. 
why is that we even experience a disconnect between serving God, serving a church, and rest? Why does that always often feel tiring? Well, the answer is Genesis 3. We are cut off from a relationship with Yahweh. We are born and we live outside the garden. We are living to some degree under the curse of restlessness. That's what you should tell your friends when they ask you, why can life be so hard? When they complain about being tired, when they say they're feeling burnt out, we're living under the curse of restlessness. Genesis 3 helps us to understand the world we live in. But despite the tragedy, despite the sadness of this passage, there are glimmers of hope in these verses, there is hope that one day our restlessness will end and we'll once again enjoy a fruitful relationship with God. Now, at this stage in Genesis 3, they are just glimmers. Trying to find hope in Genesis 3 is like trying to spot a star at Marina Bay. It's almost impossible. Only a handful are visible. To the naked eye. What are the glimmers of hope in these verses? Well, for a start, Yahweh leaves the garden with them. He doesn't abandon them. He even makes clothes for them to wear, verse 21. More than that, Yahweh doesn't deserve, destroy the garden. He doesn't chop down the tree of life. Access is barred, verse 24. But the possibility of a relationship with God, still stands. And of course, then there's that uh, glorious hint in verse 15 of the one who would come and crush the serpent uh, who made it all happen in the first place. Now, they are just glimmers of hope, barely discernible against the blackness of Genesis 3. Genesis 2 is written, like I said, to make us long for rest, life and relationship with God. But if the Bible stopped at Genesis 3, well, then telling us about life in Eden, well, it would be like making a, a starving man scroll through grab food on your phone without giving him your credit card details. Just imagine making him look at all that delicious food when he can't get his hands on it when it's beyond his reach. We'd be so cruel if the food was nothing more than a tantalizing picture on a screen. That's what it would be like if uh, the Bible stopped at Genesis 3. So cruel of God to tell us what could have been, but it's just a picture. You can never have it. But then what we see as the Bible story uh, unfolds is that the glimmers of hope in these chapters, they start to shine brighter and brighter. It's like moving from Marina Bay to the Malaysian countryside. Everyone who look out will notice that the stars are just a little bit brighter uh, here. See more of them lighting up the night sky. And that's what we're going to see in the next three talks. How the glimmers of hope, the hope of rest, shine brighter and brighter as the Bible story unfolds. And that means that the longing that Genesis 2 is intended to create in our hearts 
Well, it can be satisfied. We can taste this place of rest, this relationship with God once again. So how should we respond to what we've seen uh, so far? Well, let me suggest two responses for now before we uh, apply more and more in the talks ahead. First response should be to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he did not abandon us to restlessness. Even as Christians, we will often feel the effects of restlessness. We can sometimes feel alienated from God. Our work can feel fruitless and frustrating. Even when we're trying to serve God and his people. Many of us will have tasted the bitterness of death as parents, grandparents, and friends have been taken from us. Even as Christians, we will often feel the effects of restlessness. But praise the Lord that he has not abandoned us to it. He has made magnificent promises about future rest. Magnificent promises to restore our relationship with him forever. A couple of them on the handout in Isaiah and Revelation. And that shows us something about the character of God. God does not give up on his creation. He's not a quitter. He is not defeated by human sin. He's not defeated by Satan's opposition. He is a God who, uh, since the day that Adam and Eve were banished from Eden, he has been hard at work to get humanity back into the garden. Isn't that quite a thought? That God who rested on the seventh day has been hard at work since the beginning of the world so that we could once again enjoy rest together. Praise the Lord that he doesn't abandon us to restlessness. And then second response for now, uh, we need to listen carefully to the story of how God restores the rest of Genesis 2. Many of us will know the Bible story well. Uh, we know that God restores rest through Jesus. But I want us to encourage us to listen carefully as we hear a familiar story from a fresh perspective. Thinking about what God has done for us in Christ from the perspective of rest, it will help us to appreciate God's goodness and grace more clearly. And it will give us assurance that we are really on track to rest with him forever. And listening carefully will give us lots of food for thought as we think about work and rest as Christian believers today. So let me pray for God's help to respond in those ways as we uh, anticipate the coming few days. Our Father in heaven, we praise and thank you uh, for this picture of Eden, a place of rest, a place where we can enjoy a relationship uh, with you forever. Thank you that you don't uh, dangle that in front of our eyes to taunt us, uh, but to inspire us to show us what could have been and through the grace of your son, what one day will be. Thank you for that picture of Eden restored in Revelation 21 and 22. Beautiful garden city where we can enjoy you forever and ever.
Thank you, Father, for uh, tantalizing us and, and encouraging us with that picture. Help us to praise you that you haven't abandoned us to restlessness. And as we think about the great work that you've done for us, how you've uh, how we've uh, sinned and how you've saved us from our sin, as we think about that through the perspective of rest, would that enrich our understanding of you, what it means to be a follower of your son, what it means to live for him and work for him and rest in him. Please speak to us about those things in these coming few days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thank you, Chris, for the talk. Uh, I know I'm too tired. It's not my sinuses. Uh, so as we... As we... Uh, mourn the loss of our rest and anticipate the... And anticipate uh, the day of our final rest uh, when we're finally together with God, uh, let's not just stop there. But as Chris said, let us respond also with praise uh, as we look to God, His work, and how he's working for our final rest and salvation in him. So let us all rise as we sing our final song and respond to God in praise for what he has done and what he will bring us. So the worship team now will lead us in our final song that is a higher throne. Okay, so I'm going to walk you off. Okay, so um, question one, how has this talk helped you understand the meaning of rest in the Old Testament? Question two, uh, when do you feel a disconnect between working and resting, or even between serving God and resting? So give some specific examples within your group. And if lastly, how have you been encouraged by God's plans to restore rest in the future? How will this help you keep going as a Christian? 